of men, but chosen of God and precious. So Jesus is looked at as two things here in this verse, to, to some men, disallowed. We don't want that. We don't want that as part of what we're trying to do. In the figure here is construction, disallowed. But for God, He's chosen and precious. And unto you that believe, verse 7 says, unto you which believe, He is precious. You know, when you're building a building, you rely on that cornerstone, and that cornerstone is precious. Unto you which believe that and put all your squaring in on that cornerstone, that is precious. And that's what Jesus is likened unto for us. You know, I realize in life, there's a kind of a principle in life, and I'm not make, necessarily making a whole message out of this thought. <clears throat> but just because something is rejected doesn't mean it's invaluable. You need to remember that for yourself, and you need to remember that about Jesus. Just because something is rejected by a lot of people doesn't mean that thing is invaluable. Just because you're often rejected doesn't mean you're invaluable. Just because Jesus is rejected doesn't mean he's invaluable. My wife has uh, done different things of <clears throat> buying and selling. On you know, it's, She's very much occupied as a mom, as a wife keeping the home, but when she can, she tries to get out and, you know, some garage sales are thrifting and just to get stuff for the family, but also just to grab some things that she could resell. And she's found things before at Goodwills and thrift stores that they're like, this was only worth, they were selling for $3, and my wife's like, I know this is worth more. And she'd put something up on, a, you know, one of our <clears throat> her platforms and sell it. There was something recently, it was like a, um, it was a, what was that, duck? What was it, sweetheart? A duck? That one stuffed animal, what was it? Tell me. What was the animal, though? A duck. Okay, I want to make sure it was a duck, you know, because sometimes I'm like, oh, it's a stuffed animal. And I don't... Well, it was some little duck stuffed animal, but there used to be a kid's show about this thing, and my wife's like, I think this is worth some money. And so she bought it for a small price and sold it for a lot more because she's like, I think somebody out there is going to get sentimental. <clears throat> and be looking, oh, I wish I had that duck again. And then my wife washed it, blue dry it, blow dried it, and took a picture of it and sold it for a decent amount, and it was worth her time. You know, sometimes people reject stuff. They go, ah, just go to the thrift store. We're going to donate this stuff. It's not valuable, or we're going to drop this off, or we're going to throw this away. And <clears throat> but just because something is treated as not valuable doesn't mean that it is. And I have to tell myself that. Just because I'm treated maybe not valuable doesn't mean that I'm not valuable, ultimately in God's eyes. And as we give the gospel and we present Jesus to people, and people are like, ah, ridicule, or different responses, and that's our theme for the message. Just because they do that, don't let that make you think you're dumb. Just think, man, they're just overlooking a good deal at the goodwill of this, in, in this world, <laughs> the goodwill of God. And they don't see it. That's why Paul, Peter's touching on that, unto to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Verse, verse 7, unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. <clears throat> but unto them which be disobedient, the stones which the builders allowed, the same as made the head of a corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They get more and more offended and offended by Jesus. Sometimes people that continue to reject Jesus, as they continue to reject him, they start, they start lumping onto themselves more of a, um, I'm trying to catch the words, almost like they become more and more and more offended at them and more hard. Um, Ken Ham was a creationist. He's a Bible believer like us, believes in 
creationism and young earth and all that. He debated um, Bill Nye, the science, science guy, some years back. And um, they debated, and, and Ken Ham has a very meek personality. Uh, he says things, he's, but he's, but he's uh, overall, I think his overall personality seems to be meek. And they debated and on TV, and then later on, Bill, uh, uh, Ken Ham invited Bill Nye to be one of the first to go tour the Ark encounter in his place there back east or in the middle, in the south there of Kentucky. And so I watched a video of it, and Bill Nye said, yeah, I'll do it. But Bill Nye says, as long as I bring my camera crew, and they do the, they control the camera stuff. And so they did that, and, and Bill Nye's camera crew did all that part. And, and uh, <clears throat> you can watch this on YouTube. Bill, he, and him just walks them through the whole arc and candle. They stop and ch- chat a little bit. And, of course, and it's, a, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's, it's still contention, contending for the faith and debate. And, and Bill Nye's, you know, um, you know, objecting to thing. It's, it's basically trust science, trust science, which means really trust your own senses. Yeah. Is that's how he's interpreting it. Because true science is the observation, is, uh, is analyzing, a, it's a, the science study of observable facts, which some of his facts aren't observable. But anyways, um, so, but, I, but I realized throughout this, and I watched Bill Nye go through the whole thing, and, and they stopped at different places. And even at the end, Ken Ham was very gracious, gave him the gospel, told him, I mean, he's like, I consider you a friend, you know, I, I care about you. And, he's, and he gave him the gospel. He said, I don't want you to die and be separated from God forever. I want you to believe on Jesus. That's why he came. That's what this ark, and he just gave a gospel right there. And he even prayed for him. He goes, can I just pray for you? Somebody, he's I don't care if you pray for me. And so they prayed. And, and I've noticed, though, what I'm trying to get at is over the years, it seems like Bill Nye is getting hard. My wife even said that. She's like, I hear him. And now I'll see him on TV or on something, and he just seems to be a little more caustic. Whereas back when maybe some of our kids would watch him, he was just kind of a little more friendly, though he had a secular mind. He's becoming more hard. But that makes perfect sense for a person who's going like this to the gospel. You're, you're hardening yourself. So people have kind of our theme for the rest of our time. People have different responses to Jesus. How do people respond to Jesus today? And we're going to take that thought because here the, Peter brings up the idea of responding to different ways. We're going to take that thought and think back now on the historic event of Jesus coming to earth and some of the characters, okay? We're not going to necessarily read every text, but I'm going to at least refresh your memory. So let's go to the next slide. I'm not clicking. Can you just do it for me? Thank you. And the next one. So we're going to go to several people. You can go ahead and go to the next one. In the the Christmas story of Matthew and uh, Matthew 2 and Luke 2, Matthew... uh, Primary Matthew 2 and Luke 2. Let's think about different people. Let's think about the innkeeper. Let's think about, secondly, the, the scribes and the chief priests. Thirdly, we're going to think about Herod. <clears throat> Fourthly, we're going to think about the shepherds. And then last of all, the wise men, those five groups. I know there's more people really in the story because there's some other things that happen, but I'm not trying to make this a long Sunday school series crunched on us, you know, uh, Christmas night. Let's think about these things, different responses of each of these characters to Jesus. They all responded a little differently. So let's go to Luke chapter 2, and we'll look at the idea of the innkeeper. And uh, sometimes we're kind of hard on the innkeeper, but let's just look what it says here. It doesn't actually say there was an innkeeper. We just make the assumption there was. Uh, somebody has to keep these places. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, it's describing when Mary and Joseph were traveling 
And they had to get moving because they had to report to um, his hometown to, for a census and pay some taxes. And he was moving about, of course. And there was a lot of activity going on then. And um, he was going to Bethlehem, where he was from. And so was everybody else that was from there. So it was crowded. They didn't have enough hotel space. It was like having the Super Bowl and nobody else, everybody else ran out of VRBOs and all those other things, you know. Everything's full. Hotels are full. All the Airbnbs are full and overcharging people as it is and everything like that. That's what was going on in Bethlehem. Um, except it wasn't a Super Bowl. It was a super tax here and um, a super census. And so they're going back. And, and when they get back, it's like I got this young couple here. They're not officially married. They're espoused. They're engaged. He did not know Mary. She's going to give birth. And, and look what it says. Verse While they were there, verse 6. Look at verse 6, Luke 2, 6. It was, and so it was while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Oh, yeah. On the road here. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Well, wait a minute, a manger? Yeah, because there was no room for them in the inn. So the point was, there's no room anywhere. Go use a stable where the animals are. And we know the story. He gives birth there in the lowly stable. And quite frankly, it matches Jesus' personality, right? And because he was that person, meek and lowly and hard and humble. And it's a lesson to us that he was that he was welcomed into the world that way. And so sometimes we look at, what about that innkeeper? Don't you know who you're dealing with? You know, Mary and Joseph could have said, hey, listen, this is Messiah, by the way. Can you make some space for us? He'd be like, what? Maybe he would. We don't know. Let's clear out some space, you know. I don't know what happened. But the point is, we don't, we don't know the thought. We don't know the whole conversation. But pretty much you can assume he was just ignorant. He didn't know who he was dealing with. The innkeeper didn't took no notice. He didn't know he was dealing with Jesus. He didn't know the gospel in that sense. we got to remember there's people we deal with that are like an innkeeper. They don't know anything. Yeah. Maybe we haven't told them anything yet. You ever come like, that person's just really hard against God. That person's really doesn't, you know. Well, have we even taught, tell them anything about God yet? People, people need a chance to reject Him in a more uh, clear way. Like, how can they call on Him whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? And so sometimes um, he, he didn't know anything. We can assume here because he probably just was, didn't know any. I didn't know how I was dealing with. And there's that old spiritual that they sing. We didn't know who you was. You know, that they would sing about little baby Jesus boy. We didn't know who you was. And um, I think that's the innkeeper. And some, we got to remember that about some people. Some people need to, we need to present Jesus to them so they have a chance to make a choice to receive them into him into their inn. That's how some people are. They are ignorant. They take no notice. Number two, there's some, the scribes and the, and the priests, they, they taught about him but didn't trust him. So we're going to skip over, go to Matthew. Here's another type of response, and, and I'm telling you, we can relate with this. Some people respond to Jesus this way. In Matthew chapter 2, <clears throat> And the context is these wise men show up, and we'll talk about them a little bit later. They show up in um, Bethlehem of, or in uh, Judea, yeah, in Bethlehem of, when, in that area, I should say. They ho- they show up in um, in Judea. They show up specifically to Jerusalem, the capital. And in chapter two, verse six, they go to the capital, and they tell Herod, "Where's the king at?" And um, 
Herod's trembling. He's like, wait a minute, there's a king of the Jews born? And so it says, let's look at Matthew chapter 2, let's look at 3 to 6. Matthew 2, 3 to 6. Herod's triggered here thinking, what's going on? Herod, the king, when he heard these things, was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Verse 5, and they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, thus it is written by the prophet, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least of the princes, among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. What happens here? Herod has these wise men show up. Jesus had already been born. And they said, where's the, where's the Messiah? Where's the king of the Jews? And Herod's like, what? And he's disturbed because he doesn't want competition. And so he's like, hey, chief priests and scribes, all the Bible scholars, you know your Bible. Where's, where's Messiah supposed to be born? And they know. Like, wait, no, that's it. It's just, it's just right there. I mean, it's the prophet teaches us this. And in Bethlehem of Judea, here's what chapter verse. Here you go. And they quote it. They know the Bible. They can quote the Bible. They teach the Bible. The chief priests were to teach the Bible. I think some of the scribes did. They know the Bible. <clears throat> they teach the Bible. They could teach a little bit about Messiah, but they didn't trust Him. We have no evidence that they're like, wait a minute, let's go see also. They weren't like that. It symbolizes, I see people like that today, where you have somebody who knows the Bible. They, they know theology, or they know they were in a, maybe got a degree, or they taught a class, or, or whatever, or maybe they have multiple degrees, and they can tell you a whole bunch of stuff, but they've never trusted the Christ of all that truth. They know a body of truth, but not the person of the truth. I've had a, I had a theologian in college that he died an agnostic. He was one of the most intelligent persons I ever met in my life. And later on, he kind of took this journey of into agno after I was out of the school into agnosticism. <clears throat> but there's people like that. I mean, we used to have a lady in our church here years ago. Uh, she was Israeli, and she um, she told her testimony was she lived in Israel and she lived in different parts of Europe like Germany and France or whatever. And before she was married, she I don't know her part of her journey of getting saved because she became a genuine Christian. And, but part of her journey of getting saved, of all things, was rubbing shoulders with a Catholic priest. And this Catholic priest somehow told enough about Jesus. I mean, they believe in the deity and uh, virgin birth, certainly, of course. He said enough about Jesus and with some, some kind of force, with some basic gospel truth, for her to consider Christ. And that began not too long after that. She, was, she became a genuine believer, and I don't think she was the, he was the guy to actually you know, lead her in the sinner's prayer type of thing. But he said enough of the truth for her to end up trusting Christ soon after that. And she was, from what I remember, baptized even in the Jordan River. But I started thinking to myself, that Catholic priest might not have even been saved. Right. right? But there's people like that. Herod runs to these scribes. They tell them the truth, but they may not even have been saved. You got to think, how are, do I respond to Jesus? Have I responded in faith or am I just a person who knows about him and I can teach about him? All right, so here's another response about Jesus. Some respond unto him, they take no notice. Unto others, they teach him, but they don't trust him. 
Number three, unto Herod, he turned against him. Let's look back at Matthew. Matthew 2, 7. So Herod, when Herod, verse 7, then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. So you know what he's doing. He's a liar. Hey, come here, guys. So what did you see that star again? You want to kind of find him. I always, by the way, as a side note, I find this fascinating. This is fascinating. Herod is actually believing the word of God, but he's still lost. He's, what is he believing? He's believing the prophecy was true. He's believing the scriptures that the scribes told him. But he's also acting against that Messiah. This is fascinating. He believes the Bible, but he's lost and beyond lost. He's trying to be the enemy of Christ. That's incredible. And so he said, what did you find? Okay, what time was it? Okay, go ahead and go find him. And when you, get, when you find him, come tell me so I can go worship him too. You know? And so they did. They worshiped him. Beautiful story. And uh, then God warned those wise men in a dream saying, don't go back to Herod because, look at verse uh, 13. Verse 13. When they were departed after visiting Jesus' home, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared, appeareth to Joseph and, and said, Take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Now that's where he's telling Joseph the previous verses that God warns the wise men not to go back to Herod. But notice again, verse 13, what is it saying? It's in print saying that Herod, his intention is to destroy. Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And he certainly did. And there was an infanticide later on here in this chapter of him killing a bunch of children two years old and under while Jesus' family escaped down into Egypt for a while. So there are some people who respond to Jesus by turning hard against him. That's the point. He, they're no, they knowledge, there's a certain knowledge of truth. There's a certain intellectual perception of it, but they're against him. I'm against this. I don't want this. There's people in our society, even political forces, that are against Christian values, and they want to destroy our Christian values. The certain American political thought wants to destroy basic common-sense family values, let alone just saying that it's Christian. And so there are certain Herod responses out there. Um, I, let's look at two more responses. Let's go back to Luke. Let's see the shepherds. It appears from all indications that the shepherds trusted him. We could also add they told about him too. But notice in Luke chapter 2, after Jesus was born, that first Noel, we assume the angels did say, they did sing. They, they said there in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch of their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. I would be too. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, before behold, I give you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swelling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, this is where we assume this is music here, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the, and the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
Woo! So the shepherds are like, whoa! Can you imagine having music just out of the blue like that? It, from heaven like that? Amazing. And they're saying, here, Messiah is here. You can go visit him. And it came to pass, verse 15, when the, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let's, let, us, let us now go even unto Bethlehem this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. Verse 16. And they, they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Verse 18. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. I'm assuming, I'm making an assumption that these shepherds are trusting Him. They, they certainly trusted the message and they there He is. Messiah is here. And I think it's fair to assume that they're trusting Him to some degree. The shepherds saw Him and trusted Him. You know what's, what's a blessing to think about? The shepherds are trusting again what? The Messiah is here. And they go to this palace? Okay, yeah, that's Him. No, they don't, they don't, they're not compelled to trust because they went to a palace. They go to a manger, they see Him, and they trust Him. And what's really compelling them to trust Him, primarily the Word of God. <laughs> Whether He was in that manger or in the palace, the primary thing was the Word of God told them this is the right thing, and they trust it. And that's what it comes down to at a person being saved and trusting Jesus. It comes down to trusting this record, really, we can look at some secular things and Josephus and some, uh, you know, some apologetical reasoning, but boils down to I'm just going to have to trust this record right here, and put my faith in it, and that's the ultimate response, in as it relates to coming to faith in Christ is trusting in that word about Him, and then last of all, what how many what types of responses? Some take no notice, some teach but don't trust them, some turn against them. The shepherds trusted Him. And along those lines, number five, the wise men traveled to worship Him. So let's go back and we'll conclude with wise men here. Uh, back to Matthew one more time. And we'll back up to the beginning of the chapter two, Matthew two. And um, the, this is fascinating. It's a whole other uh, really interesting study um, about these wise men. Why did they come? Where did they come? We don't know exactly the country they came from. We can make some fair assumptions of why they came not just merely a, a unique star, but Matthew 2, let's just read verses 1 and 2, Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Imagine that. These guys show up. Where is he? It's almost like they're saying to everybody else in Jerusalem. It's like, oh, what? it's almost like saying, Where, where's he at, guys? Aren't you, aren't you guys worshiping him too? It's that, you can get that feel, don't you? Where's he at? And this is beautiful. It's the outsiders. The ones who have the scripture most close and right by them and copying it are blind. The ones way off yonder that, that had, I believe, some scripture, they definitely had a memory of somebody who was out in the east with them, a Jew named Daniel. The word wise men, there's a term, if I remember right, the same Hebrew term was used to describe Daniel. And Daniel had some notoriety 
in that region as well with a couple of kings and receiving God's revelation and having some messianic prophecies in the, with Daniel. And so these guys, I believe, were familiar with Daniel. And they may have been familiar with more scriptures and Daniel may have put some things on their uh, radar to be looking for around this time. There's a scripture in Numbers that talks about a star uh, rising out of the a star arising and referring to uh, something out of Judah and giving indication of Messiah coming in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. But so here these guys, they show up and where's he at? Where's he at? We want to worship him. And they traveled just to worship him. They traveled just to worship him. And I know, I know uh, like for us today, we, the primary thought is, well, I traveled to church to worship Jesus. And that's an aspect of worshiping him, right? People, then people on the contrary says, don't have to go to church to worship God, man. People say that all the time. Like, no, duh. Of course you don't have to go to church to worship God. You can go like this and worship God wherever you're at. You can worship God fishing. Ooh, go for it. You can worship God on the golf course. Go for it. Of course you can. You can worship God anywhere. What do you think? He's contained to buildings and stuff. But that's not the point. Going to church, it's, it's, it, worshiping God's part of it. But we go to church because it's his family, right? Like some of us need to show up tonight and tomorrow somewhere because of what? Family. That's why. And we show up on some frequency. Local churches have their frequency of showing up because of family. And worship is integrated into that. And so, but they traveled. They put some effort, in this case, they put effort into worshiping. Notice they, they traveled in order to worship Him. And then they, they had to uh, spend something in that travel to worship Him. And then when they got to worship Him, they gave of something in order to worship Him. And then when they were there, they're kind of risking their lives in worshiping Him. I wonder if we would ever pass those tests right there. How much effort do I put to worship the Lord just on my own? How much does it cost me in my time? Anything? Is he worth my time? It was, these guys, it was worth miles, hundreds, maybe a thousand miles. I don't know. Uh, but certainly, I would say hundreds of miles. And, um, and am I risking anything? You know, during the COVID thing, we all were kind of confused. What should we do? Should we assemble? Should we not assemble? And then by the end of the year, some churches are like, that's it. We're assembling. You know, we'll pay the price for worshiping, and, um, and that's sometimes how it is. Daniel paid the price to worship, didn't he? They made a, a decree against Daniel, and Daniel, he knew the decree was made that he shouldn't be praying, bowing, and praying towards Jerusalem, which was not idolatrous, but in memory of the God of Israel. When he knew it, he still bent, bowed and prayed toward, his, toward Jerusalem with the windows open, and they busted him, and he paid the price for that. Of course, God delivered him in, in in a certain way from that, but he was willing to pay the price even more so. Um, and then the, the, the ones thrown in the, uh, the fiery furnace were willing to pay the price to not worship something that was false. And so let's think about this as we kind of big, see the big picture. I'm just trying to bring out the Christmas story, bring out some of the characters, and help us see. You know, nothing's new. People are still, there's still Herods out there. There's still um, innkeepers out there that don't know anything. And, um, you know, there's still priests and scribes that are, you know, educated and know things, but they're lost. And then there's still humble shepherds that are ready to trust him if we would just reveal something to them. 
and there's wise men who would pay a price to go worship him. Where are we in that story? What is he unto us? Unto us. Unto you, therefore, which believe he's precious. Is he precious enough to trust and is he precious enough to travel to worship and to exert myself? Let's pray together and give thanks.